the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Lies, damn lies, and coronavirus models, uh, to paraphrase. This uh, model that was produced by Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times in conjunction with a couple of epidemiologists, this about a week ago, a little bit more than a week ago, actually. Particularly egregious, say, to Carnegie Mellon academics. Uh, One is an associate professor of mathematics, the other his uh, wife is an assistant professor of molecular biology at the University of Pittsburgh. He's at Carnegie Mellon. She's at Pittsburgh. They uh, suggest that what Christoph's model shows or doesn't show, actually, they suggest that what it doesn't show is more important than what it shows. They suggest that social distancing will work until it doesn't. In other words, as soon as you go back to the way we were before social distancing slash isolation, you're going to see a second wave of infections. You're not flattening the curve. You're just hiding the number of infections. You're backloading them, which is why Nicholas Kristof's piece in The New York Times is disingenuous because it stops two months out. It was constructed mainly to argue against Trump's aspirational date of starting to reopen the economy as of Easter. But what uh, the two write in the if the future is the same as the present, you're still going to have an epidemic that's just as bad. I was very upset that somebody was misleading people in this way about what the point of these mitigations are. I think it's dangerous to do that. The mitigations aren't to eliminate the caseload. Ultimately, if you reopen, they're to buy time for a antiviral therapy or better yet, a vaccine that could actually be used. You see? And it's important to understand the difference, control expectations about what can be accomplished with what measure taken. Uh, The idea that normal life can resume in two or three months without having a huge wave of infections. There's just no science behind that, says Wesley Pegden, the uh, math professor from Carnegie Mellon. Their research concludes the models claiming social distancing will flatten the curve in as little as two months are flawed. In fact, they predict without additional interventions, including additional ventilators as, as, as well as a vaccine, The pandemic will return with a vengeance the moment society resumes normal activity, regardless of how long a lockdown lasts. The duration of the containment efforts does not matter if transmission rates return to normal when they end and mortality rates have not improved. This is simply because as long as a large majority of the population remains uninfected, lifting containment measures will lead to an epidemic almost as large as would happen without having mitigations in place at all. Now, there's still assumptions 
they're making, right? There's qualifiers, if this, then that. And it's important to note those because there's some suggestion that mortality rates won't remain the same. And there's some suggestion that the number of individuals already infected and asymptomatic is substantial in the American populace writ large, which is why the antibody testing that's been discussed seems to me as so important to scale as quickly as possible. And Admiral Guar uh, yesterday at the task force briefing said he believes it to be scalable by month's end, which is not inconsistent with uh, Dr. Bhattacharya from Hoover Institution, who's uh, he was uh, supposedly, according to him, starting a serological trial in Santa Clara this week and was hoping, depending on funding, to scale that nationally by month's end as well. All right, that's a lot there. So uh, rather than just me prattling on as a layman, just trying to decipher the experts, let's talk to an expert. He is Dr. Tommy Soares, Assistant Director of the Purdue Institute of Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Disease. Dr. Soares, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All right. So tell me uh, from what you just heard and in the context of all the our discussions about models and projections and what we should be doing that we're not doing and how fast we should do what, what uh, that I said makes sense and what that I said doesn't make sense. I mean, it's a really complicated issue and modelers definitely have their hands full. I work with several of them at Purdue University. We've shown time and time again that lockdowns keep infections at bay. They can really help us as we've seen time again that, and as you were mentioning, that there is this secondary wave of infection that could potentially come back if we don't make sure that there is enough stop or enough stoppage of spreading of this particular virus. The models are not perfect. They definitely would be improved with higher levels of testing and tracing contacts of those who are infected. And, you know, much of the information about how COVID-19 spreads through the population is unknown. What we're asking modelers to do is give us a crystal ball. uh, And really, they're trying to, as perfectly as they can, mimic what would really happen in, in real life. And how true these models are, uh, will only be known maybe months or years later when all the data has been known and collected. What I think is important to note is understand how many of the people in the population are potentially carrying immunological antibodies that are protective. What we don't know yet is if somebody who was infected once, could they get infected again? We don't know if those that were infected once and survived are now immune or not. And as you said, it would be important to know because some of these people, if they are immune, they could return back to work and help us bridge this crisis that we're going through, especially on the economy side. Uh, The other thing I saw happening at Purdue that was interesting, just as uh, something that could be replicated elsewhere potentially, is this uh, safe campus task force that uh, the university president, Mitch Daniels, initiated to come to talk to people like you about best practices for what campus life should be like when it does return to something approximating normal or, you know, in, in, in preparation perhaps for the possibility of a second wave what that college campus experience should look like, and maybe if Purdue gets it right, then other universities can follow suit. Absolutely. The director of the Purdue Institute of Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Disease is Dr. Richard Kuhn. He's a world expert on viruses, these types, similar viruses, and he's been appointed as part of this task force. So President Mitch Daniels has assembled a multidisciplinary team that is going to help us create a safer campus to come. The scary
scary thing is the second wave potential, but also what if we're still dealing with some of these infections and flu season comes around and Mm -hmm. people are starting to be co-infected and that's essentially a big risk for the population, not only of students at the universities, but professors, the staff, the workers, employees of the university that keep that whole thing going. So I think it's a great initiative and it's an important initiative for us to keep public institutions like this safe. Going back to um, the research that you and your colleagues are doing in these various areas uh, that have been launched since this outbreak, What about in the area of antiviral therapies? There's a real disagreement among medical professionals about the prospects of HCQ as a effective treatment, as having a real material impact on uh, helping people overcome infection with COVID-19. There's questions about remdesivir that's in clinical trials, too, apparently, uh, um, convalescent blood therapy. Where Where are you and your team in all of this? There are really two types of antivirals that we're focusing on at Purdue. And you're right. I mean, there's a lot of questions around other drugs that have already been approved by the FDA to see if we can repurpose them to try to help mitigate the risk of illness from this virus. But these are not necessarily stopping the virus from attacking. They're not Uh, necessarily formulated or have been tested in particular to look at how they could help with COVID-19. Those clinical trials still need to take place so that we can have the real evidence. So far, there's anecdotal type of talk about these things working. And because we have such a great need to find something that will work, I think as humans, we're willing much more to take these risks at at these times of crises, but it's important to know that we really need a blind and randomized controlled trial to know that the data is valid and and that the data can can really be used to uh, hang our hat on and and use it. The antivirals that are being worked on at Purdue are two types. One is to prevent the virus from coming in and infecting a cell, so you're blocking its entry into the cell that it's trying to infect. And so we can do that with particular molecules that bind to the virus and prevent its entry. And then there's also a lot of work going on at Purdue that looks to prevent the virus from replicating or slow down the virus from making more of itself. In essence, the virus comes and hijacks the cell that it infects. It uses all the machinery that the cell has uh, to make more of itself. And it says, oh, you, you were doing something else, now you're gonna make more viruses. And if we can slow down that process of it hijacking the cell to make more of itself, we would allow them the immune system to kind of take a fight it and eliminate it eventually. All right, I'm going to need those therapeutics on my desk by Friday at close of business. <laughs> uh, all right, Dr. T- Dr. Tommy Soares, Assistant Director of the Purdue Institute of Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Disease. Dr. Soares, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, the debate over the use of hydroxychloroquine rages on. And uh, despite the anecdotal evidence, we're still waiting for the clinical trial results so we can have scientifically significant analysis of just exactly how effective HCQ uh, is in treating those infected with coronavirus, with uh, COVID-19. Uh, well, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm from the president about it. And, and I mean, it's tempered with, you know, what have you got to lose so long as a doctor doesn't believe that it would negatively harm the patient, even if it does nothing, it still presents perhaps an option or, or uh, an option for some that has proven effective anecdotally. Well, uh, Dr. William Hazeltine was on with Dana Perino on Fox News. Uh, he is a renowned biologist, uh, noted for his research during the AIDS epidemic. This is what he said about HCQ. It's sad to me that people are promoting that drug. We know already from studies, at best, it will have a very mild effect, at very best. There are studies that conflict a little bit, one from the other. One concludes it has no effect. The other concludes it has a mild effect. The net result is whatever effect it has, it will be very mild. That drug has been used for years against many other viruses to no effect. The thing that makes me sad about that story is some people may take it who are on other medications, who are other underlying conditions, and may have very serious, even life-threatening consequences. It is not something to take unless a doctor prescribes it. Well, sure, of course, unless a doctor prescribes it, and it's a powerful drug, and that's conceded, and there are known side effects, and that's conceded. And we talked on this show before about uh, some studies, uh, particularly with respect to uh, about using HCQ, particularly with respect to, say, for example, a, a diabetes drug that could have negative effects. It's more dangerous than than otherwise. Um, but there are some questions about it still, and there are other doctors, medical professionals, perhaps not with the renown of Dr. Hazeltine, but, but others, including our friend Dr. Kevin Pham, uh, who suggests that the results from the existing studies are small, uh, while small or poorly controlled, are promising. But, you know, again, lots of questions. So there's a hedge there. For example, uh, a, a study in France that's been cited involved 36 patients and just 20 took the medicine. That's considered a small sample. The French study also did not look at patients in intensive care units. Most patients who took the drug improved. However, one patient from the group tested positive after taking the medicine. So it's not necessarily a prophylactic. More recent study out of China used a larger but still fairly limited sample of 62 people. Half took the drug, half did not. 62 patients treated for five days, their fevers and cough monitored. Study found 25 of the 31 patients who were given the drug improved, 17 patients in the control group improved. So slightly better in the experimental versus the control, but uh, the authors suggested additional research needs to be done to separate out what the you know, main, the proximate cause of the improvement for the 25 of 31 in the control group was with respect to their improvement. Was it uh, HEQ or was it uh, some combination of other things? Another study out of France with a larger sample of 80 patients found improvements in all but one patient who used the drug. But there's still questions, a lot of questions. And the question that I continue to posit 
well, we know the clinical trials are going on. We're going to get answers to these questions. So when can we anticipate the answers? When can we anticipate the conclusion of the clinical trials and an assessment of the data? So some more general statements rooted in the scientific method can be offered about the applicability of this as a legitimate antiviral therapeutic for COVID-19 patients. Hmm. Now, again, side effects uh, are noted, and they include uh, fatal heart arrhythmia, vision loss, ear ringing, vomiting, headaches, dizziness, stomach pain, weight loss, and mood changes, which is, you know, the list on virtually every uh, FDA-approved drug that that, uh, is advertised on television. So, but it's not without side effects. So there's no reason to overstate the case. We just want to state the case, including asking the questions, including hearing opinions that maybe some people don't want to hear because they've, and I've talked about these anecdotes too, the stories uh, that have been tweeted out about uh, friends who had uh, somebody who was in dire straits and they uh, did this HCQ treatment and then they got better and that's attributed to HCQ. Maybe, maybe, but that's not what Hazeltine believes, Dr. Hazeltine. And I know you don't go by anecdotal evidence, but there are stories of people saying that they've had this Lazarus effect by using this drug. That is nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. And in any situation, there are always going to be people who promote one kind of quack cure or another, and there are Lazarus effects. In every epidemic I've ever looked at, it's always the case. Let me just repeat. We know that at very best, this drug will have a very mild effect on changing the course of the disease, if it has any effect at all. That is what the data has shown so far, and I am convinced that that's what further studies will show. And it's not without adverse consequence. It is irresponsible to promote this drug at this time. Again, that's uh, one respected medical professional's opinion who's got a lot of experience dealing with infectious disease. Um, There are other doctors, not necessarily infectious disease experts, including uh, Michael Burry. You may remember his name. He's a doctor. He got his MD at Vanderbilt, turned investor who famously bet against mortgage securities before the 2000 financial, 2008 financial meltdown. Um, He was, you know, portrayed in big short. Um, He believes that, uh, HCQ should be made more widely available. He's pretty optimistic about it. He also is wildly opposed to these universal stay-at-home orders, as we've discussed, uh, uh, as we will discuss uh, more in more detail with other guests on this program. He writes uh, in an email to Bloomberg News, Michael Burry, universal stay-at-home is the most devastating economic force in modern history, and it's man-made. It very suddenly reverses the gains of underprivileged group, kills and creates drug addicts, beats and terrorizes women and children in violent now jobless homes and more. It bleeds deep anguish and suicide. That's a statement. He uh, also offered some hypothesizing about COVID-19 death rates. If the testing were universal, the fatality rate would be less than two tenths of a percent. There's no justification for sweeping government policies lacking any and all nuance that destroy the lives, jobs and businesses of the other ninety nine percent. And uh, with respect to uh, COVID, with respect to uh, HCQ for COVID patients, it's pretty clear that hydroxychloroquine is doing some good for many COVID-19 patients. The standard in medicine is a placebo-controlled double-blind study, but there's no time for that. The technocrats at the top are getting this wrong. Do the studies, make the vaccines, but allow doctors to have what they feel is working now. 
Don't take tools or drugs out of uh, the treating doctors' hands. Trump should use the Defense Production Act more liberally in this area. That's, again, a very um, forceful view. Here's Dr. Hazeltine's view of where we should focus our optimism. The hopeful news is convalescent anti-serum, purified forms of that anti-serum that can really make a difference to people who are critically ill, and eventually we'll be able to protect healthcare workers as well. That's, I think, our nearest hope, is convalescent anti-serum and purification of that called hyperimmune IgG. Those are real possibilities to save lives and to protect our healthcare workers in the reasonably close future. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Op-ed uh, posted anonymously at thefederalist.com, but uh, anonymous with a description. The author is an academic physician and researcher at an Ivy League institution in New York City. Uh, would that be Columbia? Uh, okay. Regardless, uh, here's what uh, he or she argues. What if I were to tell you their current isolation strategies may actually result in more deaths from coronavirus itself? What media and policymakers are not telling us is that the longer we delay the development of herd immunity, the more elderly or high-risk people will become infected and die, even if we were to maintain the quarantine indefinitely. The reason is that only young and healthy people contribute to herd immunity. Elderly and medically ill people generally do not contribute to herd immunity because their immune systems are not strong enough to develop an immune response. He goes on, or she, to say, If we stop the quarantine for all low-risk people now, herd immunity would develop more quickly. If we were to keep the elderly and high-risk people isolated from everyone else during this time, including their own family members, we would save countless lives while also decreasing the stress on the medical system. Furthermore, limiting isolation to only high-risk individuals and cases would be much more practical and likely to work since more people need to be quarantined, less effective since the more people that need to be quarantined, the less effective is the quarantine. Well, Robin Hansen sort of picked up on um, that line of argumentation and uh, added a variolation kicker, uh, which we'll now discuss with him. Robin Hansen is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. He is a doctorate in social science from California Institute of Technology, master's degree in physics and philosophy from the University of Chicago, and nine years experience as a research programmer at Lockheed and NASA. All right. So he knows something about uh, stat, uh, modeling and stats and math, I think. Robin Hansen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. So um, picking up on what this uh, anonymous uh, Ivy League uh, physician and researcher uh, said, number one, from my read of your piece, it seems like you agree with that premise and then you want to take it one further step. I actually want to make a big distinction between what I'm proposing and just people saying, let it run wild among the young. Okay. And now I'm not saying that's the wrong thing, but I'm talking about something different. Uh, we have consistently seen with many other viruses that low doses give much lower death rates. So a factor of three to 30 with SARS and measles and smallpox. And I'm trying to get us to pay attention to trying to get people infected with low doses so that they don't die as much, and we can then more quickly, again, get to herd immunity and get this over with. 
So it's, it's still so, get it's still getting to herd immunity, but you're you want to do it through variolation, as the term is is uh, used. Uh, not right. Not so that just means yeah. deliberate infection with a low dose, and uh, you know whatever other good situation you can set up. So that means you control when it happens. That means you know who's infected. You can isolate them and prevent it from spreading to other people. So deliberate infection doesn't require that we speed this whole thing up and get a lot of people infected fast accidentally. It means we can control who exactly gets infected. But um, so so that's, of course, going to be um, uh, frightening to a lot of people, even if they're otherwise young and healthy. So you know, help us conceive of how that exactly would work and how people would have confidence that the dosage would be so low that there's no uh, the prospect of a serious illness? Well, first, this is a plan B. Plan A, highest hopes, is that we squash this, we contain it, we prevent it from going everywhere. That does not looking so good at the moment. Mm-hmm. Plan A is pretty weak and will probably fail, but we should pursue it. But we should also get ready with a plan B. What happens if it looks like it's going everywhere? That means the option is that everybody accidentally gets infected with the usual dose, which is pretty bad. So a low dose would be better, but still, yes, people would die, but a lot fewer. How do we know what a good low dose would be and how to set that up? Well, we need an initial trial with 100 to 1,000 people where we just give them differing, varying doses and through differing methods and figure out through that initial trial what works best. And that's a small cost compared to the prospect that we're facing, which is, you know, more than half the world getting infected with this and tens of millions of people dying. Uh, When we come back with Robin Hanson, I want to pick up on this discussion at the point of thinking about uh, someone who gets a low dose and dies and what that would mean towards the popular willingness to, uh, particularly among policymakers, to continue on this path. More with Robin Hanson, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, right after this. But don't you want to go down Like some junkie cosmonaut A million miles below their feet A million miles, a million miles The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Robin Hanson, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. He's got a doctorate in social science from California Institute of Tech, master's in physics and philosophy from University of Chicago, and nine years as a research programmer at both Lockheed and NASA. We're talking about his uh, variolation idea uh, and what that would mean in terms of trying to reduce uh, deaths as a result of the COVID virus by, he projects, between 3 and 30x, so substantial. But, it, but the, the, the question in terms of practicality is, um, you, you know, instant gratification. Uh, we have a model that says this is going to reduce the total number of deaths by 3x to 30x, uh, you know, as you're arguing. But uh, in the immediacy you purposely infect some people and you do a trial and some people get very ill or even die. And then how do you continue to maintain sort of the popular will uh, 
to move forward with this strategy? Well, we are at war. Uh, We are okay with soldiers dying uh, heroically with high ability to help protect the rest of us from community harm. We need that same sort of uh, willingness to let people volunteer to take a chance and help us. With respect to volunteerism, that may be something you can achieve for a clinical trial, but you know, at what level would the volunteerism have to be in order to make this strategy effective across a nation of 330 million people? Well, every life you save is worth something. So we don't have to get everyone to volunteer, uh, but we could get a lot of people to volunteer just by showing them the track record that they face a much risk, lower risk of dying. Uh, people will be scared once they see this is going to go everywhere. Uh, like people, I'm 60 years old. <laughs> people in my age group face a 4% chance of dying if we get infected, mm. and there's more than a 50-50 chance we will get infected. So uh, if you could cut that by a factor of 3 to 30, that should be really tempting to a lot of people. But with respect to, to a, a, a taking this sort of approach, I mean, it, it seems to me, and again, I'm a layman, I don't have your background, uh, but but you know, the argument is we, we don't have a denominator. You had Tony Fauci the other day just say we have no real idea how many people, what percentage of the population is infected, but asymptomatic 25 to 50 percent. We have no idea, which that's a, it's a big percentage. Uh, it's a big number. And so don't we need the, those antibody testing, uh, antibody testing to be scaled? Don't we need more information and more data that gives us a better handle on exactly how this virus is uh, is proceeding before we would, um, you know, have the, uh, the, the, the motivation to, to, uh, to, to, to take, to take on this approach that you're describing. More information is always good. We should be collecting as much information as we can quickly, but it is the 11th hour. It is near the end here. It is nearly too late to stop this thing. And we need to think about what happens if we don't. Really, you think you think it's that uh, uh, it's that dire at this juncture, even as you have reports, even as you have reports of Germany planning to begin phased reopening and reports, at least, you know, sort of initial tepid, admittedly, but reports that maybe the curve is beginning to flatten in places like New Jersey and New York. Beginning to flatten mostly means the growth rate is slower, but it's growing, not shrinking, especially if we look at the world as a whole. Look. If half the world managed to make it shrink and the other half of the world has it grow, you know what happens overall? It grows. Right. In fact, even if only 10% of the places grow and the other 90% are shrinking, you know what happens? It grows. It's like trying to have a peeing section of a swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other issue, too, that um, folks are arguing, including this anonymous uh, professor at uh, ostensibly at Columbia that I was referencing before his, his or her op-ed, the issue of a second wave. I mean, yes, if you are in isolation, you're preventing the virus from uh, accessing more hosts. But as soon as you come out of isolation, if you have no idea what the population, what the infection rate is in the population, as soon as you come out of isolation and start normalizing social interaction again, well, then you're going to have a second wave. And we just can't lock down for years here. Right. And it may take years for a vaccine. So again, we need a plan B. It's great to hope for an early vaccine. It's great to hope that we can squash it. I really hope we do. Let's try, but let's also have a plan B. What happens if we don't? Will we just let it infect most everyone with the current death rate of 1% or on average, or will we do something to cut that death rate by a factor of 3 to 30? Uh, you, um, you know, it's always helpful to have historical examples uh, to give, I think, people some 
belief, you know, we've been here before and we got through it. Uh, so there's been a lot of comparisons to the 1957 influenza outbreak, the 19, the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, you make mention of your idea here being utilized by George Washington at Valley Forge. Absolutely. So during the American Revolutionary War, we had troops in Canada. Canada would have been part of the United States had those troops succeeded, but they suffered a smallpox epidemic, wiping out a big chunk of them and had forcing their retreat. George Washington was looking at that and fearing the same thing to happen at his troops at Valley Forge. So he decided to variolate his troops at opposed to the actual law at the time. He basically flouted the law, which opposed it and insisted and forced all his troops to be secretly variolated. And that dropped the death rate from the usual 20 to 30% down to one to 2%, uh, which saved the troops and allowed us to win the Revolutionary War. Uh, that's an underappreciated part of our history. That's for certain. What, what, what about um, uh, any prospects since we're in clinical trial with respect to a number of potential therapeutics waiting for the results of those clinical trials? The usual forecast by the experts is at least 18 months. Now, maybe that's because we're not taking as many chances as we should to do fast trials. And I'd be happy to support fast, you know, aggressive, a lot of trials to try to find a vaccine. But we have to face the possibility that maybe none of them work. Quite likely, none of them work because it's really hard to find a vaccine for a lot of things. We, we still don't have a vaccine for many, uh, even the SARS that came up 10 years ago. Uh, so variolation, we're pretty sure works. I mean, there are a few cases where it doesn't work, but, you know, dose effects are very well established, very well known. And so all we need is a trial to figure out the details of exactly how to dose and, and where, you know, where in the body to enter the virus. And then we could have you know, the basis for a plan B. It's uh, not the best. We'd love to have a vaccine, but right. we need to be ready What if we don't have a vaccine. Robin Hansen, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason, Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. He has a doctorate in social science from the California Institute of Technology, master's in physics and philosophy from University of Chicago, and nine years as a research programmer at both Lockheed and NASA. And I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show his uh, ideas about uh, variolation strategy. Robin Hanson, thanks I so also much. have two books if you want to mention those. Oh, why don't you? Go ahead. Well, the most recent one is called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, co-authored with Kevin Simler. And my prior book is The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. All right. Robin Hanson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been great to be here. Maybe I'll be fast as you. Maybe I'll break hard too. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. 36 states have COVID-19 death rates of one or less than one per 100,000. According to the CDC, the overall death rate in America in 2018 was 724 per 100,000 people. For influenza and pneumonia, it was 15 per 100,000. Projecting COVID-19's lethality rate is tricky because of the lack of a denominator on the infected. However, CDC guesstimates 25 to 50 percent of infected are asymptomatic. There's a good chance lethality rates could be much lower than current reporting indicates. Bristol University risk management professor Philip Thomas projects once mitigation efforts result in a GDP contraction of more than 6.84 percent, more lives will be lost than saved. 
Studies of previous recessions suggest that for every one percentage point increase in unemployment, the suicide rate increases by one per hundred thousand or the same fatality rate at present in 36 states. Despite our incomplete knowledge about the impact of the virus, the mitigation efforts and the shutdown, real world decisions continue to be made, which impact our lives. Given what we do know about COVID-19 and about the lives economic ruin takes is a prolonged shutdown the right call. It's a question not being asked enough, not being asked enough, at least exploring the question, which we're endeavoring to do on this program. Also, something else you should explore while you're on shutdown, hopefully not too much uh, more prolonged, but uh, for now, something to do. Check out No Safe Spaces. This is the Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla film about how America has become a dangerous place to speak your mind and share ideas in so many quarters on social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood, college campuses. It was the number one political documentary of 2019, and you can watch it for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. It was uh, a 99% uh, Rotten Tomatoes.com rating, uh, audience rating, which was the highest for any film in 2019. I saw it in the theaters. It was great. And actually, the thing that was encouraging about seeing it in the theaters, it was a good crowd uh, that showed up at the theater in Chicago where I saw it. It's a film that illustrates how America is exceptional and shows how foundational American values have come under attack and how you can fight back on their behalf. It's must-see for any American, young or old. And again, it features perspectives from across the political spectrum, the ideological spectrum, from the Jordan Petersons and Tim Allens of the world to those on the left, including Cornell West and Alan Dershowitz. So again, for a limited time, No Safe Spaces, the film at nosafespaces.com, the website, Hollywood doesn't want you to see it. That alone should be enough motivation to check it out. Check out No Safe Spaces with your family at nosafespaces.com. He's always got their real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Why don't you order a national shutdown? Tell those nine governors to shut their states down. Why don't you appoint a military czar? Because Chuck Schumer said so. Uh, What about the hospitals complaining about the testing kits? Of course, that was two weeks ago. Same questions over and over again at these task force briefings from the D.C. press corps. Barely any digging into anything important, much less introducing of anything that's, uh, to borrow a word, novel. And uh, this was evident again yesterday with the way this HHS IG report was asked about and then pressed by any number of people there, including Jonathan Carl, who got a bit of a tongue lash. I mean, I like Jonathan Carl generally, but he got a bit of a tongue lashing from the president, too. But testing is still a big issue in this country. What, 
when can hospitals put the, expect put slide up again, when can hospitals expect to receive a quick turnaround of these test results? Are you ready? Hospitals can do their own testing also. States can do their own testing. States are supposed to be doing testing. Hospitals are supposed to be doing testing. Do you understand that? We're the federal government. Listen to me. We're the federal government. We're not supposed to stand on street corners doing testing. They go to doctors. They go to hospitals. They go to the state. The state is a more localized government. You have 50 of them. And then uh, Mike Pence had to come back later and re-explain the org chart to the same press. And under FEMA, um, we provide federal support. The state manages the health care response, and health care providers and first responders implement that response on a local level. Uh, our lead on this issue in implementing it is uh, Administrator Pete Gaynor. But the man managing all of the supplies, and you heard a presentation this weekend about our air bridge, what we also call the control tower. We, we literally, with, with Admiral John Polovchik at the helm of our logistics effort, uh, we have visibility now on all the supplies that are moving across this country and into this country from around the world. Uh, it really is extraordinary. I mean, when the president tapped FEMA to lead this effort, he, we essentially wanted to say, we want to organize this in a military fashion. And we tapped uh, really someone who is widely regarded as the number one supplies and logistics military officer uh, to do just that. You know, one of the things about uh, the lack that, that the press corps that is most disquieting is just the absolute lack of intellectual curiosity. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Richard Benedetto. He's a retired USA Today White House correspondent and columnist currently teaches media and politics at American University and in the Fund for American Studies program at George Mason University. I'm a graduate of the Fund for American Studies program. Richard Benedetto, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to join you. Before we get into your piece in Real Clear Politics, which was quite good, another good case study about uh, press coverage here, what, what's your sort of general assessment of these briefings and the questions that are being asked and the posture of the collected uh, DC media. When I watch them and I hear the questions that are being asked, I, I kind of cringe because of the fact that they're really not looking for information that they can pass on to the public. I mean, that's the job of the reporter. The reporter in a crisis like this, whether he be covering the White House or whether she be covering the State Department or whether she be covering the uh, the health departments, uh, is to pass on to the public information that they need and want to help them weather the, themselves through this crisis. That's our job. Information first. I go back to my my, my most basic uh, college preparation for this job, and that is, we, we I remember the dean of the graduate school when I was starting graduate school, way 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 back, saying on the first day, that you are going into the information business. You give people good information, they will figure out what to do with it. But that's that kind of reporting that passes along information that people wouldn't be able to get anywhere else or otherwise, is disappearing. The name of the game for reporters, especially for reporters covering the White House, is tell the public today how bad a job President Trump is doing. That seems to be the, the main mantra that goes through their heads as they approach these briefings. Well, I mean, the, the, the other thing it seems to me that's going on, and this is sort of uh, a tangent to what you just said, which is um, you were wrong about this. Remember on uh, February 28th you said that? Well, what do you say now? 
Uh, I mean, there's some of that you can do uh, on big things, but it's 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 the nitpicking things. And oh, by the way, everyone was wrong. It's the sort of the same uh, the f- week long argument we had about what you're allowed to call the virus, how you're allowed to term it, because Trump called it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. And, you know, after weeks of, of the D.C. press corps themselves, in addition to left politicians saying the same thing. But when Trump said it, now it became a story. I mean, right. That's that that sort of thing. Just I mean, you can do that if you want, but it just delegitimizes you with at least half the population. Part of what's driving that is that the reporters don't like Trump. He criticizes them. They don't like that. Another thing that I was taught way back was that, you know, uh, criticism is a two way street. You you we in, in the media are, are allowed to criticize the government and criticize the government players. Uh, but at the same time, they can criticize us. Now, some Politicians would push back harder than others. Trump pushes back real hard. Reporters don't like that because they have to defend themselves, and they don't like to do that. They they think that they're superior, uh, and therefore they don't they're above criticism. And that's not what. Well, right. Oh, and and look, um, give credit where credit is due. Sometimes it's also to to humanize a story. So I may know a small business owner that's struggling. Um, and that's really getting hammered after doing everything right and sacrificing and blood, sweat and tears. Um, but it's great when Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes does a profile piece on a number of small business people from a number of different perspectives because it drives a conversation in a way that my relationship with one business owner can. So that's that's great uh, storytelling, too. And that's important. No problem with that. And I, I in fact, I applaud it. But but there's just not enough of that. And there's not enough of any consideration for questions uh, for which you don't like the answer. So there's no question, you know, uh, any com- any th- Trump offering an aspirational date of Easter or having or, or continuing to press the idea that at some point in the not too distant future, we have to open the economy. And that should drive a conversation about the balance between the public health and economic health, even and even though the two are linked. But you can't even have that conversation because if you say, well, what about uh, a timeline for reopening? Then you're somehow indifferent to the suffering of others. I mean, it's it's just it's uh, it's anti-intellectual, is what it is. It certainly is. There's no intellectual. Uh, there's no intellectual pursuit at all here. The name of the game for a reporter who goes over to those briefings every single day is what can I? What story can I write that shows Donald Trump made big mistakes today? or doesn't know what he's talking about. What is it that I can do? You can see what the framing of the questions. I could tell, I've sat in that press briefing room literally probably more than a thousand times. Uh-huh. And and, uh, and uh, I could tell, when I listened to the question, I could tell exactly what the reporter wants to write from the question. They're not seeking information, they're seeking a lead. Yeah. They know it's, they, there's, there's, give me a lead. Uh, Trump said today that this was bad or this was good. And isn't it, isn't this look, isn't it stupid that he said this? Um, it, or tell me, you know, why is everything going so badly? You know, it's like, is that kind of question is, you know, are you still beating your wife? Right. Uh, and well, and, and, and also maybe not even necessarily a lead, just make it easier for the headline writers to going back yeah, to, right. going back to your piece at realpolitics.com where you just took, uh, a, a March 29th headlines from the Washington Post front page. Just the U.S. economy's downturn inside Trump's risky push to reopen the country. World's poor face grave new hardships. States needs overwhelm unprepared stockpile. I mean, you know, come yeah. on. Come yeah, on. I know. You, you read all that. You, you go through. Well, that was the point that I made. It was a Sunday morning. It was last Sunday, a week ago, Sunday. That that and, I, and I, uh, my wife was reading the headlines herself. And she said, look at this and look at that. And I said, oh my God, i got to write something about this because I've been complaining about it every day. And, uh, and it's, uh, because I, get the, I still get the print edition. It comes to my door every day. 
Well, and then and then you also have, and this is always fun too, since we just recently had another one. The mistakes that are made in in uh, in presenting a, a a gun range in Kentucky as the the uh, a front in Syria uh, with Kurds and Turks fighting, uh, or uh, as was the case uh, more recently. Uh, a scene from an Italian hospital is supposed to be a scene from a New York hospital. The mistakes are always made in the direct egregious ones like that, always made in the direction of their preferred narrative. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. I agree. Um, you know, I'm, I teach, uh, I'm still teaching and I'm, I'm still teaching right now and I'm, I'm teaching classes online. And, uh, so my, we're going to meet tomorrow afternoon. My class meets tomorrow. One of my classes meets tomorrow afternoon we need online, and I have a class of 30 people. And they're scattered all around the country now, uh, from California to this to Florida. But, um, but and we discuss some of this. I, I try to get them to. Uh, I, I, they're mostly political science majors, and I try to impress upon them the need for more responsibility. You know, there was, we used to take courses called responsibility of the press. That was a whole course. What's your responsibility to society as you promote, uh, as you pro- provide this information? I, I don't think they even bother to teach that anymore. I just don't see it. Mm. He is Richard Benedetto, retired USA Today White House correspondent and columnist, currently teaches media and politics at American University and in the Fund for American Studies program at George Mason University. Professor Benedetto, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, on sunday evening scott pelley's on 60 minutes did actually a pretty good piece about uh, the impact that the uh, shutdown is having on small businesses including uh, small businesses that are owned by minorities like Melba Wilson, who uh, uh, opened uh, her popular restaurant Melba's in Harlem after scrimping and saving like so many entrepreneurs do. And this is where she is at today, a couple of couple of few weeks into the shutdown. I started Melba's 16 years ago with money that I saved up under my mattress. Literally under the mattress. Literally under the mattress. So I grew up watching my mother doing that, and uh, I emulated it. Saving, sacrifice, and Carolina cooking made Melba Wilson a hit. Now, she's laid off 24 employees. Melba's is restricted to takeout and delivery like New York City's other 27,000 restaurants, overall one of the city's largest employers. Well, if you're looking at the bigger picture across New York, um, you're looking at restaurants, you're looking at nightlife, and you're looking at almost a half a million people that don't have jobs, that cannot feed their families, that cannot pay their bills, that don't know where their next meals are coming from. That's despair. That's devastation. Uh, it's well said. It's uh, poignant. Melba Wilson, who is an African-American lady living in Harlem, uh, and with, which is where her business is located, as I mentioned. Uh, and uh, she doesn't make this a racial issue, but um, some are. Uh, over the last several days, you've heard uh, an increasing number of people talk about uh, not only the death rate by race, but also the impact on the economic impact by race 
as opposed to, say, by socioeconomic status across races. It's very interesting. Uh, Ibram Kendi, who believes everyone is racist, writing in The Atlantic about what the racial data show. We talked about it on our show yesterday. Seventy uh, percent of uh, COVID-19 deaths in places like Chicago, more than two times the black population in Chicago, are black individuals. And um, what does that say about uh, the state of black America, particularly in urban centers? And oh, by the way, who has lorded over those urban centers for 2550 in Chicago's case, 100 years? One party, one mentality, one approach. And it uh, disproportionately has left who behind to have uh, less economic opportunities than uh, their white or Asian brothers and sisters. And uh, frankly, uh, in worse health than their white and Asian brothers and sisters, for example. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Cherry, professor, retired professor of economics at Brooklyn College, who uh, wrote in The Spectator about uh, black-owned businesses and whether they are disproportionately suffering as a result of the shutdown in response to the pandemic. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. So uh, why don't we start with the uh, the business impact uh, sort of flying off of the uh, unfortunate circumstances that uh, Melba Wilson and her employees find themselves in, like so many other business owners and their employees. Uh, you, well, looked, cert- you looked at this. Yeah. Well, there certainly are black businesses that are adversely affected. But one of the striking things is how few black businesses there are, particularly if you measure it looking at businesses that have paid employees like she had, uh, is pitiful small numbers. Uh, And I had looked into it because I'm working on a book project uh, uh, trying to see what are the policies that can revitalize failing black neighborhoods. Um, I just had a piece in National Affairs that uh, laid out some of the policy proposals, but one of the things is historically small businesses help anchor communities and community solidarity, and so it would be great if there were more fat black businesses in black neighborhoods where people can meet, can congregate, and and basically besides beauty parlors and uh, barbershops, you have very, very few black businesses. Uh, You don't have supermarkets. You don't have uh, dry cleaners. You don't have the kind of everyday places that uh, people would go and give a sense of community. Uh, But what's left out is uh, what's happening to the immigrant communities. Uh, Before this uh, shutdown, I would have breakfast three days a week in Pablo's, I would have dinner uh, in Dom Burritos, in a Thai restaurant, Indian restaurant, Vietnamese restaurants. All of these are 10 to 15 table family restaurants. And there's um, where the small business restaurants uh, are. Uh, you have uh, Asian Americans have almost uh, four times as many small businesses with paid employees as black Americans, and yet they're only one-third of the population in the United States. 
Yeah, in fact, so, you, you, you point out in your piece uh, that uh, you actually saw a decline in the number of black businesses uh, uh, when there was a, uh, a resurgence of economic activity coming out of the Great Recession. Yes, I mean, that was the case in New York City. That's where... Now, nationally, there was only uh, between 2007 and 2012, the last two national census on small business, there was only like a 3% increase in black businesses that had paid employees nationally. And in a number of cities, particularly New York City, it actually declined. Uh, So... You know, it's troubling, and there are some reasons for this, but... Uh, well, is, is one of, let's, let's, let's theorize about some of the reasons. Is one of the reasons that uh, uh, blacks are, are disproportionately employed by government, for example, and so they, they're looking uh, to uh, the, the job security and the benefits of, of public sector employment versus the risk of private sector entrepreneurship? Well, that might have been true in the 80s. I mean, government employment's not expanding, but a middle class of blacks as uh, uh, professionals is certainly uh, expanding modestly. Uh, but, but I think one of the problems is that, uh, you know, sure, there's Melba's restaurant, but by and large, there's not a real demand for black cooking. I mean, it, it's a, a variation of Southern cooking, and it doesn't have any kind of real captive audience. Uh, and it, it doesn't have the kind of popularity of Thai, Indian, Vietnamese, Mexican restaurants. So, so you really have a built-in market that immigrants have. People like their food. And also they have a captive clientele because of language and uh, ethnic products. I mean, that's why there are black uh, uh, beauty parlors and... Uh, barbershops, right. of course, there's a certain ethnic well, for it, but well, well, but it doesn't extend to, to beyond that. Well, it so, does for immigrants. Yeah, so so when we come back, I, I want to pick up on that though too. So you know, forgetting a specific sector, you know, restaurants versus other uh, retail versus, uh, and just think about entrepreneur, entrepreneurship generally, and go back to your macro point, which is the relative scarcity of black-owned businesses and. Um, in uh, you know what that portends for the future for Black Americans, uh, more with Robert Cherry, retired professor of economics uh, from Brooklyn College, right after this. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Professor Robert Cherry, retired professor of economics from Brooklyn College, about uh, his research into uh, black-owned businesses as compared to other uh, particular demographic groups, particular racial groups. And, and so let's, let's go back to the macro issue, uh, Robert, about uh, just the relative underrepresentation of black Americans uh, in, in business ownership and, and w- what some explanations for that might be in in addition to perhaps starting with uh, you know historic racism from slavery to jim crow well i think that uh you know part of the part of the problem is racial stereotypes uh you know there is an aspect in american society that blacks are not associated with quality whether they're quality workers uh 
performers in certain ways. Uh, and so I think there is a kind of implicit bias where there might be an unwillingness or uh, to um, patronize black businesses, you know, whether it's a painter for a house. I mean, there's all kinds of small businesses, you know, people, carpentry and so on. So I think there, there is a history of, of that kind. But so I mean, it's just I, I just want just want to stop you there. So I mean, the the sort of the the disposition to have a racist attitude is what you're describing, because obviously you're not endorsing that viewpoint. Yeah. The the disposition to have that attitude is is still a real thing that persists and and provides a hurdle for Black Americans. Exactly, and it, and as you mentioned before, you know, immigrants are have historically been entrepreneurial because they don't have the educational credentials, they don't have the language. You know, they don't have the ability to immediately go into middle class. Now, their kids do. And that's one of the success stories of these immigrant businesses, what happens to their kids. But it, it's really a kind of uh, something that immigrants uh, have historically done, whether it was Jewish or Italian immigrants. Uh, but blacks don't have that kind of experience. And so... They don't have – some studies have found that it's – that blacks who get into businesses have very little of a background for businesses. They don't come. Their fathers didn't own businesses. I mean, after all, uh, how do you learn to run a, ha- a hardware store? How do you learn to run a grocery, you know, a small grocery store? You need some human capital. It's not simply money. It's not simply uh, determination. But you need a certain kind of human capital. And uh, some studies have found that that's a key thing that's missing from black businesses. So you don't have you don't have sort of the ancestral history of being uh, of entrepreneurship. You don't have uh, particularly in, in over the last 50 years. You have the breakdown of the family. You have uh, uh, educational opportunities that are disparate. So you know, where do you get the experience or institutional knowledge to uh, chart a career as an entrepreneur. No, no, I mean, so, you know, so that and, you know, as I said, they don't have the captive markets that immigrant uh, communities have. Uh, and, you know, for me, it, it it leads to a fragmented neighborhoods where you don't have these kinds of places to congregate uh, in a more socially comfortable situation. Well, but but I mean, but just just to just to explore that for a second, I mean, you have obviously a whole sides of big cities that are largely African-American, like in Chicago would be the West and the South Side. So those would ostensibly be captive audiences for all sorts of black businesses. But uh, it's there's not much black ownership of those businesses that are in those neighborhoods. Let me get back to what I think is more immediately the, the situation, and that is small restaurants. Whoever owns these restaurants is in real problems now. I think that people, whether through uh, Open Table, Grubhub, or some other vehicle that cities can help generate, become vehicles where people could buy meals in advance. So, for example, Don Burrito, where I go to twice a month, I'd be willing to put in 300 to $500 
where I can get meals over the next two years. I think a lot of people, when they go to restaurants frequently, they know the owner because these are family businesses. They should be able to buy meals in advance, and that would give a cash flow to the restaurants now. They'd have the money now, and look, some business will fail. Who knows what? You might lose some money on some of these. But I think, you know, there are issues in black businesses, but... Currently, the real issue is the survival of all of these businesses. Well, working and capital cash flow, as you say. We're going to have to break it there, but that's, uh, that's a good note on which to end. Robert Cherry, professor of good. economics, retired professor of economics at Brooklyn College. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to go back to that uh, 60 Minutes package that Scott Pelley put together on Sunday evening, uh, detailing the impact on businesses in New York, specifically the restaurant business, but not limited to that. Some uh, really good observations from... um, uh, entrepreneurs that have you know one restaurant to uh, very successful restaurateurs like Danny Meyer, who's the founder of Shake Shack. Listen to what uh, he had to say about uh, where his restaurant empire stands currently. This virus has for me been almost like a hurricane with no wind or a forest fire with no flame. Danny Meyer is among New York's most successful restaurateurs. He started the Shake Shack chain and runs 20 other restaurants. How many people have you laid off? We've laid off over uh, 2,000 people. Oof, 2,000. Uh, Meyer also, um, his reason for his success, he understands um, second and secondary and tertiary effects, the concentric circles of the economy, just his economy, just the economy that relates to his business to give you some sense of... Uh, how things are interconnected. This is well stated. Then you start to look at all the concentric circles, the people that do our flowers, the people that deliver the bread, the people who fish for our fish. We know from the farmers in the green market that if people are not gathering and restaurants are not open, how do you know what to plant? You don't go to the trouble of planting a crop only to have it go fallow. Larry Kudlow, one of Trump's top economic advisors, of course, said this morning uh, he hopes this. Prayerfully, maybe four to eight weeks is the maximum, and we can come out on the other side with a very strong recovery. Well, four to eight weeks, that's still one to two months, uh, two months at the outside. What are we going to come back to? Uh, It better be uh, that quickly or better if uh, what Mark Zandi over at Moody's Analytics is saying about the GDP contraction that's anticipated for Q2 for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Josh Mitchell, who covers the, the uh, U.S. economy from the, the Wall Street Journal's D.C. Bureau, previously covered transportation policy and the bailouts of GM and Chrysler. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, your piece uh, the other day in the journal was uh, quite staggering and just in terms of trying to get a, give us a sense of the scale of the impact at present talking about, uh, uh, you know, basically a third of the U.S. economy that has been taken offline. Yeah, exactly. And what is, I think, the most shocking thing of all is that this has happened in a a matter of three weeks. 
this is a very top uh, top heavy top down downturn. So if you normally think of downturns or a recession, you know, like the housing bubble, you had consumers who were, you know, uh, starting to default on their loans, and then that trickled up and hurt the businesses because consumers weren't spending. Here, we actually have the supply side going offline first, and that in turn is hurting hurting workers and consumers. And I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before, where so quickly, so much of the economy, uh, so much of the economy has gone offline. Now, one of the uh, 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 palliative uh, measures, the uh, uh, payroll protection program, the loans that started uh, being distributed uh, on Friday, apparently the reports are $40 million worth of, uh, excuse me, $40 billion worth of loans have been processed out of $350 billion allocated for businesses with fewer than 500 employees. Assuming that goes out without too many uh, snafus, then you know, then then we also sort of have to take stock in terms of making projections about GDP contraction and uh, and and sort of economic impact with those businesses that will be able to weather the storm for another perhaps 30 days because of this cash infusion from the feds. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we I've gone back and forth as to whether we should call this a stimulus package. I think that's, you know, the popular name for for these programs that were part of this bill that Congress passed. But really, this is not a stimulus. This is like a rescue or like let's disaster relief, stay alive package. Yeah. I'm sorry. Disaster relief is how I term it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, let's keep the patient alive here. I think at some point, you know, maybe there will be a discussion or a debate about whether there should actually be a stimulus, because right now Congress is just trying to help people keep the lights on. Um, And uh, once, you know, once these economies reopen, um, well, how many of these businesses will still be there? Um, and so that's going to be a separate question right now. Well, right. And, and one of the other things, though, too, in the context of all the money that's being uh, made available to small and large businesses, for that matter, so much of it is, is whole, as you say, hold harmless money. So, OK, uh, you're, you're incentivizing me to maintain my payroll because then it's a grant and I want to reopen my business and I can cover my payroll and I can cover my uh, overhead with what I've been provided. But I'm still not making any money. And if this is my full time job running this business, me not making any money, the twelve hundred bucks or or a little bit more that I got, that's not going to be enough to keep uh, that. That doesn't give me the cash flow I need month after month. So you're really still talking about a very finite period of time where this uh, really prevents more of a cratering than has already occurred. Of course. And the big question is how long? You know, I think that no one really knows exactly how long this will last. So when I asked Mark Zandi to crunch the, you know, the figures for this report that we had, um, you know, that's contingent on states reopening in a few weeks. You know, his what he's saying is that, you know, a fourth of the economy, almost a third of the economy is, is offline, but that that's not going to last that long and that hopefully by the end of the quarter, a lot of these states will reopen. But again, you know, that's a big question mark as to whether that's going to happen. We don't even know if this outbreak is under control right now. Um, so we're just really in, in, in the dark here right now. <laughs> well, right. And then you're going to have to have a real chamber of commerce sell job to get people, a lot of people out of the, out of their homes again and believing that it's safe to come out. There was a Huffington Post YouGov survey that found 60 percent of Americans would still stay at home when possible, even if the uh, uh, restrictions uh, on on shelter were uh, were, were relaxed. So, you know, it's going to there's going to be a lag time where uh, until the majority of people 
much as the supermajority of people believe it's safe to come out and try to resume something approximating their normal lives. Yeah, you know, and I have this big question, which is I think a lot of industries will, will be intact. But what about certain industries where, you know, let's say you go to the mall and, you know, you want to try on, like, make, make makeup and, you know, that involves someone touching your face. Right. You know, like, will, will people ever go back to doing that again? Um, you know, I just I could see some industries not just coming back as much as they have been. I don't want to speculate too much here, but that's one of the big question marks is even if we can get out of this, what would the economy look like even when we're in an expansion again? Yeah, a lot of question marks. He's Josh Mitchell, covers the U.S. economy for The Wall Street Journal from its D.C. Bureau. Previously covered transportation policy in the bailouts of GM and Chrysler. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. Sometimes I give myself the drinks. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I call this segment Hollywood Cranks. Let's start with uh, Whoopi Goldberg, the lead man-hating shrew on The View. And Dr. Jill becomes a Surgeon General. His wife, yeah, Joe because Biden. Joe Biden's yeah. wife, because she, yeah. you know, she he would it. never do it, but she, it's, yeah, she's a hell of a doctor. Mm-hmm. She's an amazing doctor. Maybe she's a doctor like, and PhD. Yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't, I, don't, oh, I, don't I could know. be wrong. Maybe I thought she was. Yeah, a I think she, I she's she's oh. a teacher, but you know. Uh, no, I, I don't know. Tell me more. Amazing, hell of a doctor. Amazing doctor. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg says about Dr. Joe Biden who has a PhD in education. <laughs> she's surgeon general, but she's amazing. Hell of a. How do you know, Whoopi? Please do elaborate. No, she's one of those doctors, as my friend, uh, Dr. Gene Kroom, the uh, president of Judson University in Elgin, Illinois, likes to say, yeah, he's a doctor. But um, as his father told him, being a Ph.D., not an M.D., he's one of those doctors who can't help anybody, which also certainly applies to Jill Biden. And uh, I don't think there's anything that can help Whoopi Goldberg, at least intellectually. Uh, Sticking here. Uh, Woody Harrelson, he's a bit of a crackpot, even though he's a great actor. Loved him from Cheers Forward. But uh, he posted recently about, uh, he posted a conspiracy theory that uh, 5G radiation is linked to spreading the coronavirus. Uh, Admitting, I haven't fully vetted it, but I find it very interesting uh, of a report claiming 5G radiation is, is exacerbating and making more lethal the spread of COVID-19. Oh, brother. All right, uh, Hollywood kook number three, Tom Hanks. Uh, I'm glad that he and Rita, I think the, he and wife, uh, Rita Wilson, are on the other side of uh, being infected. But he recently said, when I graduated, when I was at a junior college, pause, we finished up a history course, and the professor wrote up, you need to learn this word. He wrote up the word triage, which represented, I was told, the concept that eventually the world will have too many people in it in order to subsist on its own. And that stuck with me for a long time. And that's what Inferno, the movie, is about. The quantum physics of overpopulation. Quantum physics. Shouldn't throw those phrases around, Tom. In an instant, there could be too many people on the planet. And actually, the math does add up. And actually, the math doesn't add up. And you don't know what you're talking about, you doofus, because you don't know the difference, as so many ZPGers, between logarithmic growth 
like population versus exponential growth like food production, which is why Malthusian nonsense has been debunked time and again, starting with David Ricardo about 150 years ago, 170 years ago, uh, and including a bet between population bomb author Paul Ehrlich and Professor Julian Simon that Julian Simon won when population when uh, when when Neil Malthusian Paul Ehrlich in his book was predicting uh, mass starvations in the 70s and 80s in his 1968 book. Dopes, dopes, good at playing pretend, good at playing make believe, not good at policy making or advancing the discourse in a policy direction. Generally speaking, there's certainly some exceptions. There's no law that says Hollywood types have to be ignorant. It just seems to work out that way. I'm Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com website you also find podcasts there as you do on spotify and itunes twitter at dan Proft and at dan Proft show writing in the chicago tribune dr carrie mendoza penned these words in the last few weeks i've treated dozens of patients with covid19 unlike your average day in the emergency department i'm now paranoid of my every move worry not only of contracting the virus but of bringing it home i live with the invisible potential that follows me coronavirus on my shoe on my hair under my nail just a few weeks ago these thoughts would have seemed crazy but they're not crazy now and uh, she does have the personal protection equipment she needs uh, as she writes in this op-ed but uh, it's it's worth noting i know dr mendoza a little bit and um just in terms of what uh, she's doing to help others, um, she would probably not say, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school, but she uh, and her husband have uh, sons that have um, an underlying condition that potentially would expose them to be more, uh, potentially position them to be more vulnerable than others. And yet she's still on the front lines working to treat and cure COVID-19 patients. So that says something about the medical professionals that are on the front lines, including in Chicago, which is where she is an attending emergency medicine physician. Dr. Carrie Mendoza, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. So tell us, uh, before we get into uh, sort of the, the thrust of your op-ed in the Chicago Tribune um, and, and just building on the uh, excerpt I read from your piece, tell us a little bit about what it's like where you work and what it's been like over the last several weeks. It's been hard. Um, you know, it's obviously been scary, uh, but the emergency medicine community is just a really tight-knit community that has always been prepared for dealing with whatever happens to come through the door. Uh, so, um, you know, it, initially, obviously, there was some, you know, kind of confusion and uncertainty as to how serious this was going to become, but now there's definitely clarity about it. And I think everyone's just working great together as a team um, and, you know, feels they're all in the same boat so they can lean on each other. Um, and uh, I think, you know, what's, what's uh, sort of uh, humbling to us is that, you know, the wider community in Chicago and the whole country, you know, is focusing 
a lot on on our community, and this is kind of what we are trained to do every every day. Obviously, it's a higher risk situation now. You uh, you talk about the need to you know thinking about lessons to be taken away from this crisis when we're on the other side of it. Uh, the uh, need to flatten the curve uh, in a bureaucratic sense, flatten the healthcare bureaucracy that that curve. And you talk about operational changes that uh, physicians have wanted for years that are finally being implemented uh, during this this period of time. Talk to us about some of those uh, operational changes that should stay. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, so a lot of I think the bureaucracy that's you know developed around healthcare has come from you know needing to be in compliance with the regulations and i think over the years you know things probably certainly started out with good intentions like a lot of regulations so focused on safety and um and i think as just the healthcare dollars uh have just expanded of course there's you know kind of a look towards well how what value are we getting for these dollars and then i think from there it just grew um, for example, like in the emergency department, one thing the government has required is to measure the length of stay a patient is in the department. And certainly for con- certain conditions, like if you come in with a heart attack or stroke, we have protocols that are based on, you know, how quickly we can get you to definitive treatment. And we all agree that that makes sense. But applying it to a lot of, you know, to every case in the emergency department really doesn't make sense. So, for example, patients that come from nursing homes that are really complicated that we, you know, may have to reach out to get records from other places or talk with family. The time spent with the patient to solve the problem um, is what we should be focusing on now, not how fast we're doing it. And so in order to report a metric like length of stay, an army of people need to be hired in order to track all that and then software and you know is then bought to try and track that and then you get feedback for example um, from an administrator talking about that issue like well why are the length of stays longer Um, and again they're good-hearted people just doing doing their job but it 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 cross purposes of actually taking care of our patients in the er so that all has been suspended um, thanks to President Trump and um, the CARES Act. And uh, a lot of these reporting requirements are suspended during the emergency. So, you know, we're still doing our same excellent job, but now we don't have um, the hospitals not focused on, you know, doing that administrative function. Um, the other important example would be telemedicine. Um, you know, for years, uh, you know, physicians have wanted to innovate, um, for example, doing teletriage when uh, the waiting room might get full. You know, we would like to use telemedicine, have a doctor remotely helping to triage the patients to declog the emergency room. However, there's been, you know, so much uh, bureaucracy in between what the physicians see as an innovation and getting it instituted. Um, But that, again, President Trump, with um, the the CARES Act and things have basically said, hey, you guys can all, you know, do telemedicine, do what you need to do. You don't have to have special software to do it. So there's a lot of exciting innovation going on to, you know, basically take care of patients. And it's what doctors and patients have wanted for for years. One of the other things, Um, one, one of the other things, and you mentioned this, too, that I think was surprising to many until uh, Massachusetts Governor uh, Baker uh, moved to uh, suspend the the prohibition, 
which uh, is doctors not being allowed to practice medicine across state lines. And this is this is clearly this is clearly just like a AMA cartel measure or, or inspired measure to protect physicians in each day from competition. How dumb is that? I mean, especially when you're talking about a, a situation like this where you need more medical professionals in New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts, wherever than you do in Wyoming or the Dakotas. Um, and to have any artificial barrier for people that are essentially trained the same, do the same jobs in different states from uh, being able to rally to help their uh, fellow uh, medical professionals in other states just seems silly. Yeah, absolutely. That's another great example that we're all really happy about. Um, to your point, you know, when you go, the medical training is, you know, their standards that across the country that have to be passed. And then when you enter residency, you know, again, that's national standards um, when you're board certified. But then um, in the States, it's like you have to have a license in every separate state. And that is absolutely um, obviously frustrating to, you know, our mission to care for patients, but also has stifled innovation. Um, so we, we are really pleased with that, um, you know, at a national level, uh, again, President Trump through HHS has, you know, has removed that barrier, but each state has had to have their governor remove that barrier as well. Um, and, you know, that is something that just should, you know, not go back to an old, you know, an old model. Um, we should be as, you know, on the front lines, we should always be ready to be able to just you know, go to another another state to help. Also with telemedicine, um, the requirements prior to the crisis has been that you have to have a license in the state um, where the patient resides. Well, I mean, that's just silly again. That's just extra sort of layers of bureaucracy and extra money to get licenses. It just really has nothing to do, you know, if I can, uh, if I'm board certified and can practice medicine in Illinois, you know, why can't I, I do that somewhere else to to help, um, you know, a patient? Or, so, or at minimum, have have states um, uh, be able to move to have reciprocity agreements like they do with uh, uh, with uh, lawyers? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the other point to make, and I don't know if people realize this, within the VA system, that has been the standard. Um, so, for example, if you work at the VA in, you know, California, you can come to Illinois and they honor your license. They don't make you get a separate Illinois license. So it actually, ironically, exists already in the VA, but outside the VA, um, system, there's been this, you know, requirement to get a separate license in every, every single state. So I think that that's clearly a common sense, um, you know, change that I think the country can agree on uh, as part of preparation for, you know, a future, you know, a future national need. She is Dr. Carrie Mendoza. She's an attending emergency medicine physician in Chicago. Dr. Men and uh, check out her piece, I should say. Next COVID fight is to flatten the bureaucracy, which I tweeted out at Dan Prof. That's in the Tribune today. Dr. Mendoza, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Stay well. This is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. California Governor Gavin Newsom is getting along well with Trump, and he's taking heat from the left for saying so, for saying what he knows to be true, that uh, the administration has been responsive to California's needs. Uh, so much so, their um, fatality rate is now less than one in 100,000, which tracks to uh, sparsely populated states, one of the 36 states with one or fewer than one death per 100,000 at this juncture. But uh, that doesn't mean that Gavin Newsom isn't still a champagne socialist and a cultural Marxist. And he reminded his constituents of that during a recent uh, online event where he took questions such as this one about the opportunity this pandemic provides to push a more progressive agenda coming out of it. What's the opportunity to your question uh, for reimagining a more progressive era as it relates to uh, capitalism? Forgive me for being long winded. Uh, But absolutely, we see this as an opportunity to reshape uh, the way we do business and how we govern. And that shouldn't put shivers up the spines of, you know, one party or the other. I think it's an opportunity anew for both parties. That's not limited to uh, discussions at the uh, gubernatorial level. That's happening in discussions in your kids' schools. And our friend Beth Feely, who is a mom of three kids in school, wrote about that, a piece for The Federalist. The schoolwork my kids are bringing home exposes public schools' radical leftist politics. She is on the north shore of Chicago. She's a freelance writer, editor for various nonprofits, including the Woodson Center, serving as launch director for its 1776 project. Beth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, you knew about what was going on with the homework your kids were getting, or you you knew what was going on in the schools your kids attend because of the homework they're getting because you're paying attention. But it seems that uh, now that you're a homeschooling parent, like so many uh, by circumstance, you're uh, getting even a a more up close and personal look. Uh, Yes. Uh, The assignments that I kind of prompted me to write the article, they did happen a couple weeks ago. And yes, this has been ongoing, you know, quite frankly, for decades in the school system. But it seems to have ramped up in the last several years, at least um, to my notice. And you know, mostly as the as the kids enter junior high and high school, that's where I'm noticing more and more of these assignments that have an increasing focus on equity, an increasing an increasing focus on just really what amounts to left wing politics um, on various issues. And so, yeah, it's been on my radar for a while. And it did seem that now that we all are educating our kids at home, that this is a really great chance for parents to really, you know, take a really good look at the curriculum that their kids are learning and talk to their kids about it and just see if this is in their schools. Um, You know, I think this takes place, you know, in certain communities more than others, um, but it's certainly in mine. And so I, um, yeah, I just felt the need to address it. Well, and so the theme here is, and this is, you know, a school district where you pay some of the highest property taxes in the state, which is means the highest property taxes in the nation. And you have the highest spend per pupil uh, right up there in the state. And uh, and everything is forced through the prism of race and gender, it seems to me, in terms of curriculum. Well, they're certainly trying. Um, and obviously, I think that there are some, um, you know, some classes that kind of fit that more easily than others. I think English and history usually is where you see a greater opportunity to kind of mold the curriculum around these ideas. You know, math and then it used to be physics were a little bit more immune. Uh, yeah, but no, you're seeing you're seeing more and more of this language. Um, sometimes it's overtly through class assignments, and then sometimes it's just how they talk about 
certain subjects. I mean, for example, in AP U.S. history, Columbus was presented as just a white male. Um, you know, there's just a lot of language. So sometimes it's it's direct, sometimes it's a little more subtle. Um, but it definitely, it does, it's kind of this undercurrent. Uh, and it is, um, you know, something that the administration, you know, they're being obvious about it. They actually promised us that they would embed this into the curriculum. And, and they're doing so. Um, and so I just, I really, but I, I question the educational value of it. Um, you know, this is purportedly, equity is a word that is used to, you know, close uh, disparities in performance across racial groups. It's used for some things, which I, you know, I would love to see. Um, I just don't think I see any of the results. And, you know, so then why, why are you doing it? And I think there's actually a big downside. I think it's, it can be very divisive. Um, you know, this is a lot of language that you find in Marxism, you know, in terms of you've got the oppressed and the oppressors. And, and I just think that it is, um, you know, it, it has, it could be destructive. Um, I don't think it's meant that way, but I do think it can, it can have that effect. And again, well, it's not meant that way. It's not meant that way. Well, and, um, you know, yeah, everybody's adjusting, including the CEO of Zoom video that so many of these schools were using. So that's <laughs> it's it's less easy to hack. <laughs> but but here's the thing. This this could be fun, too, with Zoom video and doing classes that way with students in a particular class all, you know, on video. Boy, have have mom or dad sit down right next to the kid or or in place of the kid and make sure teacher sees mom or dad listening to what he or she has to say when it comes to critical race theory and in, in insinuating itself into physics and so on and so forth. That would be fun to have some adults in this conversation if the kids are afraid to push back. That is not a bad strategy. Um, I think this is a great opportunity for parents uh, to do that and. Yes, we actually, there was, I'm not sure if this was covered, but um, there, was an, uh, there was a hacking incident at Nutrier. It's obviously yeah. ubiquitous, or the CEO of the company wouldn't be saying, I really messed up on security, and they're adjusting their, their security and, and trying to make it less hackable. So it's obviously a systemic problem. But, but um, yes. uh, so, so is a systemic problem, parents not paying attention to what's going on, even in the, uh, even in the Tony school districts up on the North Shore. So this is a clarion call, I would say. I, I think so. Um, you know, I think that a lot of parents, you know, you, you can't always know what is going on in a classroom. You're not there. So as you said, now now you can be. Uh, and then also, you know, just on an ongoing basis, once we get back to normal, I do think parents really, and it takes time to do this, but they need to pay attention. You need to show up at school board meetings. You need to stay on top of the memos that they generate. And because these boards, you know, they make important choices that really do impact your children. And unless you show up, unless you have a voice, um, some of these bad practices will continue. Um, I would absolutely recommend that parents, if you do come across these assignments, contact the teacher. Um, They will, you know, you can find out the context, you can find out why they did it, and you can run it up the food chain um, if needed. But nothing changes unless you do speak up. So I, I strongly encourage that. And I, and I know some parents are, are reluctant to do that because they're afraid of blowback. Um, I have not found that. Um, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. And I really do find that um, you actually, first of all, not all teachers are on board with this, A. Uh, but then B, you can affect change. It may be incremental. It may not happen nearly as quickly as you'd like it to. Um, but I can assure you it won't happen if it goes unchecked. Well, if they're signing Shakespeare, there's a toehold. There's a there's a glimmer of hope. Uh, she is Beth Feely, freelance writer, editor for various nonprofits, including the Woodson Center, serving as launch director for its 1776 effort. Check out her piece, which I tweeted out at thefederalist.com. 
the schoolwork my kids are bringing home exposes public schools as, 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 as radical left politics. Beth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I don't know you a thing, baby. I don't know you a thing. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, uh, much has been made over the last week of uh, Sweden's comparatively laissez-faire approach to coronavirus. Uh, it's now the country is the subject to a lot of criticism. It's bizarre, actually. It's almost like people are rooting for Sweden to be punished for not uh, uh, abiding the shutdown paradigm, even as uh, Germany announced yesterday, as we reported on this show, that after April 19th, the shutdown order that's currently in effect, they will begin a phased return to normalcy with Strictures in place like mask wearing and uh, some and 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 uh, a, a gradual progression back to um, full social interaction. So it's still going to take time, but nonetheless, that's a step back towards openness. Uh, should uh, should people give Sweden the uh, Swedish model more consideration? That's the question. Uh, there are certainly some that we've talked to on uh, tonight's show that would suggest. Maybe not exactly what Sweden is doing, but certainly that just the uh, shelter-in-place orders for some indeterminate period of time are uh, not nearly as effective as the politicians are suggesting they will be over time. Uh, Bending the curve could be very temporary. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Miltimore. He's the managing editor of Fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education, contributor to Time Magazine, as well as the Wall Street Journal. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, um, yeah, boy, you uh, you cover a lot of ground in your piece on Sweden, from Voltaire to Leonard Reed. Um, but uh, uh, with, with respect to uh, what people do now in terms of assessing who's doing it right, they look at data that virtually everybody who knows anything about epidemiology or statistics says is woefully incomplete and could be highly inaccurate. But nonetheless, they say, well. Uh, John, uh, Sweden's uh, death rate per one million is, uh, you know, almost two X that of uh, its uh, Nordic neighbors. And so Sweden is making a mistake and uh, now they're being punished for the mistake they made. Yeah. uh, You know, there's been a lot of chatter about that. And um, I think, you know, if you look at the data, um, you know, Sweden is doing fairly well compared to most of Europe. Um, you know, in my article, I looked at a couple, you know, people who, who found numbers from a few days ago where their, their fatalities jumped, um, you know, quite a bit. I mean, it went from like, you know, 25 or 30 to, to 59. Um, but what they ignored is, you know, a couple of days after that, Sweden's, you know, rates fell again. Um, and I see, I see yesterday it jumped up um, to 70 something. 
Um, but, but, you know, if, if you just look at the numbers, you know, Sweden, Sweden is not faring much worse um, than many of its you know, European neighbors and is doing much better um, than, than, say, Spain, Italy, Belgium, France, Switzerland, and some of these other countries that went into lockdown mode, you know, pretty quickly. But it isn't even the part of the point is, I mean, it's just too, too, too soon to make any determinations. It's like looking at uh, the score of a baseball game in the third inning. I mean, you have no idea how the other two-thirds of the game are going to play out because the data is so incomplete with respect to true levels of infection in most societies where you haven't done sort of the representative uh, sample testing, the serological testing that gives you a real handle on what the infection rate is, including the asymptomatic. And this was the point that uh, continues to be made by some, at least, to say, well, you're making some big statements on some very uh, shaky statistical ground. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think the one problem I have is everyone is just assuming that these lockdowns are, are effective. Um, and, and they may be. You know, like you say, we're still getting, you know, data is coming in every, every day. It'll be weeks before we really, you know, know, if, if not longer. Um, but right now, I, I don't think you can conclusively say that, that these lockdowns are effective. And that doesn't mean that, you know, social distancing isn't the right thing to do. I think it is. I think every epidemiologist you talk to says, you know, that that's, that that's the right approach. But is state-mandated um, social distancing, you know, that effective? And, and, and Sweden has tried a lighter touch on that front. Um, they're, they're limiting capacity in restaurants. They're taking, you know, many prudent steps um, you know, saying we're going we're to leave, you know, elementary schools open, but if, if you're older, you know, we're, we're going to have your school at home. Um, they're urging people to wash their hands. Um, they're, they're doing this a little bit differently. And, and so far, um, I, I think that approach, you know, it, it, you, you can't say that's been a failure, at least not based on the data we have right now. Uh, when we come back, I want to, I mean, all cultures share a uh, desire to survive, but there are some real cultural differences country to country, even state to state in the United States that also need to be um, understood and perhaps given a bit more respect. We'll start uh, there when we pick it up with John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Miltimore. He's the managing editor of Feed.org. He's a contributor to Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about the uh, more laissez-faire approach to the coronavirus uh, employed by Sweden, which, uh, as uh, John was describing before the break, uh, allows people to still visit libraries and pools, uh, go to restaurants. The public gatherings are limited to 50 people, but children still get up and go to elementary schools in the morning, although students over 16 have been encouraged to school at home, according to uh, uh, John's uh, piece at Fee about uh, Sweden's laissez-faire approach. There's something else, though, too. This was posted over at uh, Tyler Cohen's blog, Marginal Revolution, uh, an email about uh, Swedish culture, and uh, uh, five factors that may inform the approach that Sweden has taken, different than other countries have taken, just the nature of uh, Swedish society. Uh, Swedish culture uh, is one that trusts peers will behave responsibly. 
one. Number two, a long tradition of administrative independence. Despite all this talk, uh, especially from politicians in this country, like uh, socialist politicians like uh, Bernie Sanders, the idea that uh, uh, Sweden is some uh, command control society and state uh, just it doesn't square with the facts. But anyway, the second uh, piece is long tradition of administrative independence, uh, possibly an actual attempt to reach herd immunity here by allowing this to spread among the healthy. Um, a strong belief that political parties will uh, keep the economy going. Uh, the wide consensus in Sweden about the value of work and to have jobs available, in particular to keep the export sector intact. And a long tradition of peace, which actually uh, uh, distinguishes Sweden from some of its uh, neighbors like Denmark and Norway and Finland. And I wonder, um, John, you know, how much of those cultural differences between countries should also be contemplated and given some due when it comes to assessing the varying responses. Yeah, I, I think it matters. And I, I think things like, you know, geography matter, urban, urban, you know, population density and, and things like that. Um, and it's sort of one of the points, you know, one of our economists raised in an article recently saying California, in, in some places, you know, ha- having more stringent measures in California might make sense. Um, in many places, it probably doesn't. Um, and, and I think all those factors need to be weighed when you when you look at the measures that, that you want to implement to, to contain um, this virus. And, um, you know, approaches are going to be different in different places. Um, and I think everybody's just trying to find out the right balance between um, g- getting people to take the virus seriously and, and to practice social distancing, um, but also maintaining civil liberties. And, and saying, well, we're, we're not going to pull over random people um, because they have uh, the wrong license plates or out of state plates, like we're seeing in some places. Yeah. Do we want to go down that road? Um, how, how how much do we want uh, to use you know state power to enforce these um, these lockdowns? Well, right, and and um, you know, there's a meme going around a picture of the Continental Congress with the caption. Now, of course, none of this is applicable if there's a virus. And uh, I, I saw that. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and so so, you, you know, there's some consideration. We talk about physical health, public health, talk about economic health, but also the health of our constitutionally uh, uh, structured representative republic and some of the actions that have been taken with uh, re- pulling people off golf courses or beaches or, frankly, even uh, sidewalk counselors in front of an abortion clinic that's otherwise open in Charlotte, North Carolina. I mean, you know, that should give people some pause. Or, for example, you can fly in a plane three rows apart, but you can't be in a church three pews apart. I mean, these are not these are issues that should be raised and discussed, not just, hey, whatever the state wants, the state gets. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing that in many places. You know, we're seeing some places if you go outside without a, a respirator mask, um, you can be fined a thousand dollars. And we see some places if you go out jogging, you, you, know, you might be arrested. Um, and you know, so, some of these have pretty stringent penalties. Like you can spend a year in jail for violating it. Um, but it, as bad as that as other countries, you know, we see some places it's much worse. In the Philippines recently, the president said, "We'll shoot you. <laughs> we 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 will yes, shoot you. That you is know, worse. Well, we have yes. the right to shoot you if you violate quarantine." It, well, right. I mean, of course, the difference is uh, Duterte is not exactly, um, you know, I. Um, someone who is governed by a constitution like we would expect politicians to at least pay lip service to in this country. Um, but, but, but there's that, there's also, you know, the, 
the how this spread too. I mean, uh, the report for the New York Times uh, earlier in the week about uh, 430,000 Chinese visitors since they had the since they knew about the outbreak in Wuhan, um, uh, but also some of the decisions that European countries made. The uh, importation of migrant workers in, in northern Italy that had been going on for years and, and specifically from Wuhan that exacerbated it. Now, I'm all for the free movement of labor. But in terms of you know being willy nilly about uh, about borders, about uh, migrant worker programs, uh, as well as about things like pandemic planning, you know, there are consequences to that, too. So it, it seems to me it's, this is always the struggle. The the state has um, and, and specific states, specific politicians making specific decisions. They clearly were not omniscient. But now we're supposed to to believe that this current crop that's in office now, whether it be in Italy or America, they are omniscient. Yeah, I, I think you do have you see a lot of it, right? Like, um, you know, first, we didn't take it seriously enough. And then maybe are, are we overreacting? Um, you know, you bring up China, and you know China's taken a lot of flack for not containing, um, you know, the virus right away. Um, in, in one sense, I, I, I'm a little sympathetic because containing, we're seeing how hard that is to do. On the other hand, China um, should be given no forgiveness for the the, the steps they took to conceal yes, the virus, right. but to lie about it. Um, and and I think you know that that's a, a much different story. Um, you know, containing an epidemic is not an easy thing to do, but we need to be transparent and honest, um, you know, when we're dealing with it. And the Chinese government certainly was not that. Right. In addition to all sorts of unanswered questions we have about, uh, you know, biowarfare programs over there and, and whatnot as well. And 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 uh, yeah. and, and frankly, um, some of their uh, researchers interacting with researchers in America too, the Harvard uh, researcher who was arrested recently. So, you know, the, the sort of uh, cloak and dagger intrigue from which there are, are about which there may be some real legitimacy. That's another aspect. Uh, he is John Miltimore. He's the managing editor of Fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education, contributor to Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks much, Dan. Uh, have a good one. You too. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Earlier in the program, I uh, went through some Hollywood crack pottery. Whoopi Goldberg, Woody Harrelson, Tom Hanks contributing to Hollywood's uh, reputation as a land of... uh, with a uh, bottomless reservoir of ignorance on many and all things not related to acting. But, uh, of course, there's a flip side to that, too. For every three of those uh, crackpots, you get uh, a Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla. I don't know that Prager's Hollywood. Adam Carolla a little bit closer. And they made a film, so that's sort of Hollywood. No Safe Spaces is the film, number one political documentary of 2019, now available to watch at home for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. Again, this is the film, as you know, that uh, uh, covers the issue of free speech, free thoughts, 
uh, open marketplaces of, of, of ideas and places like college campuses on social media, even in Hollywood. That's how it should be. That's not how it is. And Corolla and Prager document this as well as what you can do to advance the cause of free minds and free thought in a free society. Hollywood doesn't want you to see the film, which is, of course, a good reason to see it. No Safe Spaces available for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. One other bright spot in Hollywood is uh, Midnight Cowboy himself, John Voight. And uh, um, and by the way, Mickey's great as Mickey and uh, Ray Donovan, too. Uh, Voight has a um, hopeful message, and I uh, thought you should hear it. He posted it on Twitter, but if you didn't hear it, you should, particularly as we're uh, uh, beginning what we expect to be a rough week in terms of the human suffering inflicted by the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Here's Voight. Let go. Now, rise. For this is a day of prayer. This shall override This shall find a place in history that will be only a memory of caused destruction. These limited fools have nowhere to hide a shallow course of magnitude that tried to wipe out civilization. And only one, God, can. And he shall not obey such disgust volume, for God's only meaning is life. He shall condemn the wrong and shall gift the right, and he will bring volume to God's creation, his creation. His only means is to repair, and he shall not back down to his duties of his call. Stand with us now, for we all bring this mighty light upon the earth, his love, to reach each and every one. And through this fear that all may fear, fear not, because Jesus, Moses, all the saints, prophets of Ancient times, all the scriptures written for Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, all have been with America, for America. She is the land of freedom. She holds her sign, her torch, for all to remember what she stands for. That is God's freedom, our freedom, our truths, and God's beam of his glow to show each one that we will prevail, we will win. We will rise. Thanks for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prosper. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.